Hello, everyone, and welcome to Me, You, Us, a well-being podcast. It is Well-Being Wednesday here at Consumers Energy. If you recall, last Wednesday, we talked with Glenn and Tina about PTSD. This week, we're going to continue our discussion of leading in on racism with my very, very special guest, Angela Tompkins. Angela, if you'd introduce yourself, we'll go ahead and get the conversation started. All right. Thanks for having me, uh, Bill. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, I am the Executive Director of Inclusion and Strategic Talent Sourcing. I have the pleasure of leading um, the company's diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, as well as uh, strategic type pipeline. Um, talent pipeline uh, development um, where we um, work externally to build partnerships within the community to build a diverse talent pipeline for um, our job. So thanks for having me. So Angela, as you know, um, over the past few weeks and month or so, a lot has gone on in our country, uh, in our state around racism and anti-racism. And a few weeks ago, we had a great live meeting with Reggie and Leroy and others to talk about that. And then we followed up with Monique Wells on the podcast to talk about how we can lean in on racism. And so today, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. What is the difference between being not a racist and being anti-racist? What does that, what does that mean to you? So um, that is a great question that I think is causing a lot of pause and confusion for uh, many people today because they are, for some, new terms, a new vocabulary that people are uh, struggling with. And so when I think of in very uh, simple terms, think of being non-racist, it's being neutral. Um, it is not, um, you know, it is not proactively um, engaging. Um, it's um, um, when you think about being anti-racist, anti-racist is where you move beyond uh, that really neutral standpoint to taking action, to being an ally, to using your voice, uh, using privilege, um, and actively getting involved to whether it's um, in systemic racism, whether it is um, uh, being a voice speaking up um, and speaking out for those that are being marginalized um, and discriminated against. So when you're anti-racist, that is uh, really action versus non-racist, which is neutral. And non-racist does not mean you're bad. Um, it doesn't mean that you are racist. It simply is, you know, neutral. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's missing the action. And I think that's really what we want to happen in this journey is that we all take a hard look in the mirror at ourselves. And, you know, how do we show up in this differently? How do we participate differently? And it's not just non-minorities. It's all of us need to take a very hard look in the mirror to, um, acknowledge how we can show up uh, differently to create safe environments for uh, conversation, learning, understanding, sharing stories. Um, you know, I, over the last few weeks, as all of this have unfolded, I personally felt um, a bit of guilt around not sharing stories. You know, could I have shown up differently and share my stories more often, more frequently to help others understand my experience. Because if you don't sit in my shoes, you don't 
understand my experience. So not having my shoes, not having my experience, you don't know unless I tell you, right? So I own, um, you know, a piece of it too and sharing. And while, you know, the difficulty of sharing the story, uh, the humiliation of the story doesn't um, excuse the responsibility to share. So that's, that is a great segue. You know, when we talk about sharing stories, you know, I grew up white family, middle-class neighborhood, and I know that my whole life I had heard stories about things that had happened to black people. Kind of ashamed to say that I, in the back of my head, I always thought, you know, somebody's just trying to stir up a problem or there's, there's just no way people do that kind of stuff. That doesn't happen anymore. What I have actually found is that a lot of people that I love and respect have shared their stories with with me and with others. You, you talk about uh, Leroy Wells sharing his story um, during the live cast. That that took a, a lot of a lot of courage to do. But the thing is that people respect and know him, and that brings truth to what what people go through. And I know that you shared your story when you when you were a little girl about some things that had happened to you and. I was really hoping that today you'd be willing to share that with me and the audience. It really just brings life to that. And Angela, you're somebody that we know and respect. And if it can happen to you, then it can happen to anyone. So would you mind introducing us to that and sharing that story today? Absolutely. Um, You know, it is not only that story. um, It's the several other stories. Um, But that story, I think, is important uh, for me as I work through and process, because that is where it all started for me. That is where um, my uh, I was introduced to racism um, at six years old. So I told an abbreviated version of the story at the town hall, and I'll um, share in more detail here with you today. But you know, six years old, um, we lived in a, a predominantly white neighborhood growing up. Um, we were one of, oh man, maybe three um, uh, families of color in the neighborhood. Um, and most of my friends did not look like me, but that was never an issue for me. Um, and I always felt or at least uh, until this moment um, that I'm going to share with you, I felt included and didn't know uh, difference. Um, so a friend of mine I played with her many, many times. Um, and again, hindsight is always 2020, much more clear later. But um, every time I played at her house, um, her mom was always the one home, her mom. Um, and so this particular day, when I was over, her it was her mom was home, her father wasn't there. And we were at the kitchen table drinking um, milk and cookies and putting a puzzle together. And her father came home, he came in the kitchen. And I remember this like it was yesterday. He had on a, um, had taken off his, uh, work uniform um it was i remember it was a blue like uniform type shirt he had taken the shirt off um and had a white t-shirt on underneath the blue uniform pants uh brown boots i remember it clearly and um i could you know i saw him as he was 
coming in the back door, you know, taking off his coat, um, bringing in his lunch pail. And then he came into the kitchen and just he was walking and then just stopped um, in the middle of his steps. And I didn't know or understand why. And um, his face went from, you know, a smile to uh just anger and he turned red and I remember his eyes being really big and uh, just like the, you know, the veins in his neck uh, were popping out and just like just anger and rage. And he, he came quickly um, over to where I was and grabbed the glass of milk out of my hand, threw it to the ground. It shattered on the kitchen floor. Milk went everywhere on the table, the floor, um, on my clothes, some splashed in my face. And he said, get this N-word out of my house. And I had never heard the word before, didn't know what it meant. So the for me in that moment, it wasn't the use of the word. It was the anger, the rage, uh, the fear um, that it caused me. And, you know, the mom, I remember she was so gentle and I don't remember her words, but I remember, I just remember how nice it she felt in that moment. I don't know what she said, but I remember her, you know, helping me, ushering me out of the house, um, getting, helping me get my jacket and my boots. Um, it was, uh, I, I don't think there was snow on the ground, but it was cold. And we lived in a cul-de-sac and we were the center house in the cul-de-sac. And uh, this house was directly across the street. So it was on the main street. It wasn't in the cul-de-sac, but we were literally kind of across the street. And at six, I wasn't allowed to cross the street by myself. My parents would arrange, you know, you could go play. And at, you know, a certain time we would be at the corner to come and pick you up. Um, and obviously, um, when this happened, it wasn't conveniently at the time that my mom would be at the corner to come and pick me up. So I had to leave. I was afraid, you know, the anger. And so I ran home um, in tears. I was afraid. It was dark outside. And when I got home, I was in tears. I told my parents, and I said the word to my parents when they said what happened was wrong. I said the word because I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know. Um, what was happening. And I told my parents what had happened. And I and I concentrated on what did I do wrong? He was so mad. He was so angry. You know, I was frightened. What did I do? What did I do? And I had told my parents the word. And so, you know, they clearly understood what was happening. I didn't. Right. So it was, you know, what did I do? What did I do? And my parents in that moment, they did not have the talk with me. They didn't explain the word to me. They didn't tell me what it meant. They didn't. And I remember my father saying, when I kept saying, you know, why was he so mad? What did I do? You know, why was he so mad at me? My father said, and I don't remember paraphrasing, but that's his problem, not yours. So he was essentially teaching me at the early age of six years old that uh, don't give power and ownership to that word. Over a lifetime, then consistently being called that word, then you kind of understand, you know, later what it means. And eventually we did have to have the talk. Every other time the word was used, it hurts once I understood, you know, what it meant, the history of it, the, it definitely stings and hurts. Um, but for me, when I heard the word, it took me back to the six-year-old little girl. So when someone said it to me, 
I became frightened. I was fearful. You know, it brought back. And I think, you know, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. that I experienced trauma at six years old. I didn't understand that that day at that point in time. But, you know, as as I went through life and every time that word would be used towards me, I reverted back to the six-year-old girl because I never dealt with the trauma. What, you know, I just knew like, well, whenever somebody uses the word, that's their problem. Nothing is wrong with me because of my skin color. Nothing is wrong with me because how I was born. So I never took ownership of the word, but unfortunately, what I didn't get was how to heal from the trauma. I definitely owned that trauma and it took me a long time to overcome that. I think when you have just years of repeated, uh, you know, treatment because of your skin color, um, it gets, that's when you don't want to talk about it because it gets, and I had to, um, uh, wrestle with this shame that I felt that I didn't like. I, it's embarrassing to tell people that you, you know, got treated less than or, you know, just because of the way you look. That's not, not something that you just readily want to share and, uh, you know, express to people. And so I've had to work through that too. Um, so yeah, I think sharing stories is powerful, it's important. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, as all of this has unfolded, one of my high school friends sent me some um, pictures from um, an incident that happened at our high school. And um, it just makes me, again, I always say hindsight is twenty twenty, but it makes me reflect um, to think, you know, I've been in training for this role in this day for a very long time. And even in our high school, um, we had some racial uh, issues. Uh, very few people of color attended my high school, small Catholic high school, and we were having um, a pep rally, spirit day, and there was a, um, uh, a talent show. And there were some girls who were actually friends of mine who performed the Jackson 5, but they performed the Jackson 5 in blackface. And uh, the minority students were upset about it. You know, like all of the performances had to be approved, you know, beforehand. So, so after the so what you're telling me is that the school approved that? The school approved that. And so we went to the principal's office, a group of us, after the pep rally, and it that exactly that. How could you approve this? How could you let this happen? Um, and the um, girl, they called the girls into the office, tried to uh, have a conversation about it. And the girls basically said, you know, they weren't sorry. We explained that we were offended, what it meant. They weren't sorry. And the principal told us they didn't mean any harm. Um, and so <laughs> we were quite upset about it, offended. You know, we felt invisible, um, invalidated. Uh, you know, we don't matter. Um, and so me being the, uh, and I, I guess, again, I say I was born to do this work because I encouraged, um, since the principal wasn't supporting us and since it didn't matter that we weren't going to come to school the next day, that we weren't going to have our own protest. So you were, um, a, against... you were a born activist and advocate. <laughs> I was, I was. <laughs> and so, 
Um, you know, I did, of course, I didn't run this past my parents for their approval. So I had to go home and I didn't know if I was going to school the next day or not. Maybe they were going to make me go. But, you know, um, the students went home, told their parents that we wanted to plan a sit out. We didn't, we wanted to be heard. And until we could be heard, we didn't want to go back to school. And the parents actually supported us. Um, other parents called, you know, my house that night because I was one that started all of this. And, right. you know, gratefully, my parents supported me, supported us. We didn't go to school. And um, I think when the school realized that we had this um, concerted effort and many minority students didn't show up uh, to school the next day, they, um, you know, said, okay, we need to have a conversation. We need to, you know, get serious about this. So they called us in, our parents in, um, the girls that did the uh, Jackson 5 performance in the blackface, they called them in, called their parents in. And the uh, resolution was definitely um, understanding, you know, why uh, that was harmful, hurtful, what that meant. Um, and uh, what we, uh, the minority students, um, asked for is that um, we have um, some education, Black History Month education. And so we um, set up, turned the entire library into um, education around Black History Month and um, just, you know, uh, Black history facts and uh, notable figures. And so it really became a great educational opportunity for all of us. And I think that is where or when I learned that I needed to always stand for what I believed was right and I needed to stand in my truth. And I think that's why I, you know, stand so strong today um, for other groups and other people that have been marginalized, because I understand the power in your truth and your voice when you do that. Well, you know, what a testament to your ability to take a situation of adversity and turn it into a learning experience for people who, who, who did these things not out of necessarily meanness, but out of ignorance, right. for lack of a better word. And and what a testament to your family that supported you in that endeavor which helped build you into the person you are today, you know, and you, you talked about earlier on, you talked about, you know, not sharing the stories and, and feeling the shame and things like that. And, you know, a couple of things I've learned along the way. One is that if we share our stories, that helps other people understand what's mm -hmm. really going on. Um, the second part of that is, and we talked about this earlier today, and that is that trauma needs a witness so that when you share those stories, not only are you helping other people understand what you've been through, but also you are telling that story. And in, 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 at least for me, anyway, it gets a little easier every time. The trauma yep. is always going to be there, but yep. how I deal with it will be a little bit different. A bit different. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So as we close out, what can people do to help? So I, you know, as I reflect on, you know, what is happening, how um, how what's happening is shaping the future right now in the moment. Like, I just wish we could all just have a group hug um, <laughs> and, and just move on. Um, but I know it's not that easy. Um, but I always like to, um, given I've been through a lot in this space, um, and, you know, I think 
at every different phase of my life, I probably would have given you a different answer on, you know, how we need to move forward, how we heal. And I said where I am now. Um, and I think it takes us and I sound like a broken record, but I truly believe it's space and grace that we have to provide the space to learn and listen uh, to each other. That is how we minimize the space between the differences is when we leverage those opportunities to listen and to learn. And you have to be open. You have to be open to hear and receive things that are going to be difficult, but you have to be also open to look in the mirror and know that sometimes the problem is you. And that is each and every one of us. You know, I have to look myself in the mirror and deal with myself just like everybody else does. So it's not always about everybody else that we also need to look at how do we um, heal ourselves and how do we show up in the world differently. And so it's listening and learning from others, but it's also looking in the mirror at ourselves and pushing our own uh, truth and our own growth. And that's sometimes the most difficult part. Thank you so much for being here, Angela, and sharing those powerful stories. Remember, sometimes trauma needs a witness. And also thank you to the audience for tuning in. Be sure and join me next week when we'll kick off our celebration of generations with a discussion about baby boomers with Nate Waters. You won't want to miss this.